Welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby, where we talk with your favorite LGBTQ authors. I'm Anita Kelly, and my guest today is Mary P. Burns. Hello, Mary. Hi. How are you? I'm great today. How are you? I'm good. Really good. It's a beautiful day. It is a gorgeous day. I was just out in the park working. <laughs> ah, <laughs> it's fall, so, you know, it's nice. Um, so, Mary, let's just jump right in and um, talk about your latest release called Suspecting Her. I believe that it just came out like um, maybe September 1st with Bold Strokes and then September 15th everywhere else. Is that correct? Right. Or tomorrow, the 14th, one or the other, yeah. Okay. So can you tell us about it? Um, sure. Uh, do you want to know, like, the genesis or what the book is about, or both? Whatever you want to tell us. Okay, well, um, it was kind of born about 10 years ago when some kids at work were talking to me about apartment hunting while they were waiting outside my boss's office. And um, they were telling me how hard it was, and I was like, yeah, yeah, apartment hunting in New York is hard. Give me a break. Um, it turned out... <laughs> Well, that's true. There were four of them, and one of the guys was African-American. And we had a later discussion. Uh, I told them, you know, break up and go get, you know, two separate apartments in two different buildings. Later on, I was talking with the African-American lawyer, and he said, you know, I'm kind of wondering if it, if it has anything to do with the fact that my, you know, my girlfriend and I are black. And I didn't really, you know, know what to say about that. And I thought, well, I kind of thought back to when I first began apartment hunting in this city. Um, 1981, and there were three of us, and, and one of the gals was African-American. And when we would apartment hunt together, because um, the third gal was in California, um, we kind of got a cold reception. I, I didn't think anything of it at the time. I, I figured, you know, we're just poor. They don't want to talk to us. Um, but later on, when she split off to find her own apartment way uptown, the apartment hunting went differently. Wow. I didn't think of it at the time. you know. But then, okay, so fast forward to 2000 and whatever. And I'm um, 2010 and I'm chatting with these guys and I'm like, hmm, I kind of wonder. Um, so I sort of did an outline and put it away because I wasn't ready to write anything at that time. Um, and then after I finished forging a desire line, I brought this out because um, that was 2018. I thought, well, this is kind of ready to roll with it. And, you know, I wonder if things are still that way in the real estate market. Um, so I began exploring and, and opening it up. Um, and creating Erin O'Connor, who's a broke artist, and her best friend, Nat Robichaux, who is uh, an African-American blogger journalist. Um, and one of their friends brings a, a story to them about she's working for a realty company, and uh, she brings coffee into a meeting one day, and they're all talking about the files that they're working on and the fact that there are certain uh, clientele that they don't want to show apartments to in certain parts of the city because their boss has decided he wants to go a different route. So they are trying to figure out how to key the applications so that they know what race people are and where not to show. Um, so Nat runs with this story. And because Erin is broke and thinking about leaving the city, Nat hires her to help her with the story. Um, they need to do research. They need to go to apartments as, you know, couples or friends or separately, mm -hmm. uh, how they're treated. Um, along the way, of course, Erin falls in love with this particular realty company's top saleswoman. Um, not realizing when she first sees her in a park uh, near where she lives that this gal works for this realty company and then, of course, goes to her first apartment hunt alone and, and there's Catherine. And they kind of are attracted to each other and Catherine offers to show her uh, an apartment for sale, private showing, 
Um, and of course, Aaron <laughs> thinks, oh gosh, this is going to be, you know, be a little bit of fun. Um, <laughs> it turns out it is a little bit of fun, but it's flirting. And she, Aaron realizes after all this time, she might be falling in love. Uh, after her first relationship went south quite a few years ago, um, she had been the youngest artist to show at the Whitney Biennial and she had kind of had a meltdown and her partner had walked out on her. So she'd just been hiding for the last five years. And now all of a sudden here's somebody who could be a very real possibility in her life. Um, of course, not at the right time and not the right person. Because yeah. uh, Nat is apoplectic when Aaron finally tells her who it is she's dating. <laughs> all kinds of complications yeah yeah wow so so this story kind of came out came out of a real life yeah thing that was happening and wow. most of yeah okay so most of your stories do come from real life yeah i'm a playwright by training and um i'm you know that old adage write what you know um Partly true and, you know, partly, gosh, if you've got an imagination, you can go anywhere. But I need to base my story and my characters in reality. So a lot of them are amalgamations of different friends. And, yes, they are something that either happened to me or I was very close to in my life. Wow, that's great. Um, and do your friends ever get upset? Have they ever been upset with you because they recognize themselves somewhere? <laughs> So far, nobody has recognized themselves. <laughs> I guess that's that's good and bad, right? It is, but I, I happen to be working on something now, and I know the friend is going to recognize herself, so I'm going to have to contact her beforehand and say, it's partly you and it's partly so-and-so, so don't get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, thank you for clearing up how to say Nat's last name, too. I was struggling with that one. <laughs> Robichaud. <laughs> I like that. That's awesome. Um, so uh, did you have to do a lot of research for suspecting her? Um, I had to do research just in terms of... Um, how apartment hunting is done today, because Lord knows I haven't had to hunt for an apartment in, oh, I'm going to guess close to 30 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had to do a, a dig deep into how some of that's done online. Um, and not, uh, I mean, I, I talked to friends who, who had apartment hunted in the last, say, you know, five or six years to understand how the online um, applications work also. Um, okay. Figure out how the guys at the company could have keyed them um, to to uh, do what they did in mm -hmm. terms of so that was that was a bit of a dig and I hoped that it worked because I wasn't sure what I was doing you know actually did work but you know the editor and I talked a great deal about it and I, I did a lot of work on it as as we were working and it turned out you know I think to be better than it was originally um, let's see any other research no I don't um, well, I had to do some research for the wedding that takes place on Cape Cod because I had been up there in, you know, since before the pandemic, well before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so luckily I have family on the Cape and one of my sisters was going for vacation and I said, can you just kind of drop by the Wuklasset Resort and tell me what it looks like? <laughs> Take pictures because, you know, I can't tell from the stuff online. Mm -hmm. And she was thrilled. She was like, oh, good. We get to go to a resort. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> not bad for research right yeah she loves when i call her to say can you go to <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds like oh, a yeah. good sister 
she's a great sister. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So, um, now your first novel uh, with Bold Strokes was released in May of 2020, right? Um, uh, yeah. And that is called, is it Forging a Desire Line? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us about that one? Um, yes. That was, um, I mean, I, I started there with a, a breakup of a long-time relationship myself. Um, but they changed a lot of things about that. And um, how hard it was to, you know, get back into things. And did I want to or did I not? And that's that's where that one was based. Um, and... So I, I had Charlie kind of, um, Charlie Owen, kind of, you know, on the fence about what is she going to do. Um, she's been going to the Y to swim for years, and there's this handsome new security guard on the desk, African-American gal, who's much younger than she is. And they, they flirt a lot, and she's like, yeah, but, you know, she's younger than me. I can't do anything. With I can't do that to her. I can't get involved and then kind of walk out on that, which I would probably do. Um, and then she spots this also very handsome gal in the – locker room which is you know the first thing you think is a locker room come on um but <laughs> it turns out that this gal is also a swimmer like she is in the pool um and she really wants to get to know her and over the course of several weeks um neely the security guard um challenges her to a date finally after you know a year of flirting um at the same time that she's getting to know joanna and uh from the locker room and um now she's kind of in a quandary about what to do because you know she's kind of having fun um, and then out of the blue, her ex calls and calls and calls because Charlie does not want to speak to her. They've been together for 25 years and the, the whole thing had imploded when, when Trisha had a relationship with somebody else and Charlie kind of never wants to see her again. She's like, the, if, if she dropped dead, that'd be great with her. Well, it turns out that's what might be happening because Trisha has been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and she needs Charlie's help. Um, so Charlie can't turn her back on her. You know, she's known this woman most of her adult life. Yeah. Uh, and as she gets involved um, and helps her, you know, begins to help her through it, and she realizes, you know, this this is not going to get any better. Um, it gets to the point where um, Trisha needs nursing help, and she's wealthy enough to um, get private nursing. And of course, the company that she hires sends Joanna. Oh my goodness! She, who's a private duty nurse, and who's been sort of advising Charlie about what Trisha should be doing along the way. And then that night in the door walks Joanna and <laughs> Charlie's like, oh, darn. <laughs> now what do I do? Because now we have a professional relationship here when we were just getting to know each other. So that's a complication for Charlie. And as they try to work through it and she realizes she's falling in love with Joanna, she knows she has to let Neely go. Wow. Difficult decision for her. Yeah. So is this based on like a real life event for you? Partly. Um, the breakup certainly was, and I <clears throat> borrowed, um, unfortunately, a little bit. I borrowed my older sister's um, relationship with her partner of 30 years who died of lung cancer probably about five years before I wrote that novel. Oh. That's where I got all that part from. Um, they were still together, but I just thought, okay, let me use this and, you know, pair it with that and see how this all turns out. Yeah, that's sad. I needed to bring Trisha back into this novel. To, to open Charlie up. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, it, it has a happy ending, though. It does, yeah. It sounds like a, a s sad plot line a little bit, but... Uh, 
a little bit, but Charlie ends up learning a tremendous about, amount about herself and um, obviously having to forgive Trisha for a lot of things and vice versa and falling in love with Joanna anyway, who, who even though she needs to keep a distance, um, is not very far from Charlie. Mm-hmm. So that when everything kind of falls apart, she's there. Okay. So um, when, when you wrote Suspecting Her, was that during the pandemic, like when you were working on it? Um, yeah, partly it was. Um, I started writing about, oh, two weeks after I finished forging because I was kind of sitting around twiddling my thumbs thinking, okay, what do I do now? Um, they sort of tell you not to start something right away. Give yourself a break. And I thought, yeah, well, I can't really. Um, and so I brought it out because I've, I've always got about five novels outlined on my desktop here. Really? Um, yeah, I, um, well, af- after not writing for 20 years, it's like poor anatomy. So I just figure if I get an idea and I can outline it, I'm going to do that. And then I'll just shove it in this file here because who knows how long I can keep writing. You know, I don't want to, you know, tempt the fates at all. So, yes, I had, and that was the most ready to go outline, um, suspecting her. So I brought it out and, and I had already written probably, I'm going to guess about a third of it. Um, and I went over it because, by then, um, I had been, well, I hadn't. I just, I started working on it again, and then um, I had to put it away when Victoria and I went to the editing process for uh, forging. Um, you know, you get into this editing, and you don't have time for anything else, sometimes not dinner. Um, so I did put that away, and then um, I'm going to guess about a month after we finished the editing, because that really just, you know, took a lot out of me. I pulled it out again and looked at it, and I said, oh, there are so many mistakes according to what I just learned from Victoria, because it was about a three to four month process, the editing, and I was surprised, you know, what I did and didn't know. So I tore it apart and I started rewriting it. And I happened to drop an email to Victoria to say, okay, I'm, I'm working on something again, just to let you know. And here's kind of what it is. And she was like, no, 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 don't pull out something old. That's a mistake. And I said, no, 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 you taught me a lot uh, during the editing of this first novel. And I'm, I've just ripped it apart and applied everything that you've taught me this second novel so I'm thinking it's going to work um but you know of course you'll tell me when you get it uh so I continued working on it because I thought I'm doing a better job here it's a lot better than than the first you know go round uh and I kept working and that was prior to the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and I'm going to guess for about two months I didn't write because I was just like you know the world's falling apart what do you do I couldn't actually do anything and then that April I thought well okay, why am I not doing it? It does, You know, my life is the same, I hate to say. I just, you know, I, I have this life of, of what I do with the writing and I go out to the park and I work and I come in and I, you know, clean or do whatever else. So nothing has really changed for me except that I can't go anywhere now. So I'll just go out to the park and work. And honest to God, it was so eerie and weird. Nobody was there. It just kind of looked like if it had been a war zone, I, it wouldn't have surprised me because there really literally was nobody out there. Wow. Nope nothing so when you say go out to the park and work what does that mean it's right across the street from me i live um in a neighborhood in new york city that is right across from the u.n and it's above 42nd street and first avenue and there are two private parks up here well they're not private they're public people who know about us come up here and use the parks but a lot of people don't know about us so um they didn't they don't come up to the parks and hadn't until after the pandemic or you know the middle of the pandemic when people really needed to get out and we're starting to the neighborhoods and all of a sudden we had people up here we'd never seen before which was fine by me 
Um, but April and May, it was just so quiet and so peaceful. And I worked um, probably about eight hours a day. There's nothing else to do. Uh, and um, everything else hit with, um, with George Floyd and everything. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, now I'm, I might, not that I have a problem on my hands, but now, now I've got something different here and I don't know quite what to do. Um, so I continued writing and I contacted um, the publisher and said, I'm going to need a um, sensitivity reader because I just want to make sure that this is right now because the world has changed. Mm -hmm. um, so originally they said, go find one. And I looked um, and I would have had to pay somebody and I was getting to the point where, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. And then um, they sent out sort of a, I don't know if it was a company-wide memo, but um, we, ha a, a, we have a sensitivity reader on staff now memo type thing. And I thought, oh, thank God. So um, I finished the book and I sent it off to them and I kept my fingers crossed. They sent it to the sensitivity reader who liked it. So I also work with a writer's group though, and they are brutally honest, let me tell you. And they were okay with what I was doing. Oh, good. They it worked. Um, so how long have you been with that writer's group? Since 1994. Wow. So you must know each other pretty well, huh? Each other very well, yes. Uh, two of us are published. Well, actually three of us. The third guy publishes a, a lot of, in a lot of e-zines online. And he's now got a novel that uh, an agent is interested in. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. It really is. They are kind of a rock for me. It's like yeah. your own little support group. They really are. Yeah. And honest to God, they pull no punches. I mean, they they made me pull down Forging a Desire Line twice uh, and rebuild uh, once from the ground up and the second time from, from a different area. They made me rebuild. So they just, um, you know, they tell it like it is. And, and you can listen to them and do what you have to do or not. And then, you know, I mean, I don't think I would have had this first novel published if it hadn't been for them, really. So when when you say you went back and pulled out Forging a Desire Line, did you, like, scrap what you had and start writing anew based on your storyline? Or did Not you... Anew. Um, they told me, uh, when, I, when I pulled it down the first time, um, they told me that Chapter 1 just wasn't working. Um, and, and by then, we were close to, I don't know, maybe Chapter ooh, 9 or not right around there. And so I, yeah, I ripped it all down and not necessarily started from the beginning, but I had to get rid of chapter one and it had a tremendous amount of information in it. That was mostly probably exposition, which is what they were trying to tell me. And I had to weave that in as action and not, you know, show it, don't tell it. Yeah. Which is, can be a really hard thing. Uh, yeah. But it, for a much stronger first half, uh, it ended up that once uh, Victoria, the editor got hold of it, the first half was fine. It was almost, we didn't have to touch that. And I thought, hallelujah. It was the second half that I had to rewrite. Um, so the second time that they told me I had a problem, <laughs> I was on chapter 10. And one of the writers group members said, you know, I would stop reading here because I don't like Charlie. And I thought, oh my God, this is bad. Yeah. So yeah, I had to go back through those first 10 chapters again and make her kind of likable. I had started out by making her not necessarily likable. I was sort of an anti-hero. Mm -hmm. And finally all of them said, no, don't, don't do that. Um, yeah, that's hard when you create uh, 
you know, this persona that um, you want to be a little antagonistic, but where do you draw the line so that the readers still still like the person? Um, yeah, that's tough. Yeah. And as they reminded me, you're you're trying to write a lesbian romance here. You kind of want your readership to like Charlie. And I think, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good thing, right? So um, how did you choose a publishing house? Well, the funny thing was, well, you know what? They're the biggest publishing house. So I always figured I would go with them first. I had read articles that said, you'll never find an agent for what you're doing. And I thought, eh, you know, I always like to challenge authority. So mm-hmm. I picked out agents that represent um, gay writers and I contacted them. And guess what? They didn't want to represent me. Really? So, yeah. So this article was right. I, I, I guess we're small potatoes. Yeah. Uh, um, because it's a huge genre. But yeah. at that point, I thought, you know, Bella Books um, or Bold Strokes Books. And when I had been doing the research to write um, Ordning a Desire Line, well, actually to write any romance novel, I had a friend who had challenged me um, after my writer's block and he knew I was writing again. He writes gay romances for guys. And he challenged me to write a lesbian romance. I said, please, no, get away. Um, and then he took me to the um, Romance Writers Book Fair, was it? I think that was it. Um, and I was just blown away by the genre and the representation and the number of books and the number of authors. And I was like, wow. He said, yeah, this is the second biggest genre in, in publishing. So I started doing some research, i.e. reading a lot of lesbian romances. And I found that most of the ones that won the Lambda Literary Awards and the Gold Crown Society Awards and that were, you know, pretty darn good were Bold Stroke Books authors. So um, I looked into them and I looked into Bella and a couple other companies and I thought, start at the top. So I sent it off to um, Bold Strokes, who told me they would get back to me in 14 weeks. And at the 18 week mark, I figured, well, they okay, they don't want it. I was just that morning, honest to God, at the computer preparing to send it off to Bella Books when I got an email from Radcliffe saying I would like a, a phone consultation with you. Nice. They had accepted it. I was I was completely blown away. That's awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. They, they wanted me to rewrite it first or, you know, cut it down. It, it had originally been 143,000 words. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Um, I cut it down to 123,000 before I sent it off. And she said, can you get rid of another 23,000? And I thought, oh, all right. And I did. It took me about three months, but I did it. And I got it back to them right away. And she said, great. So fantastic. And here we are. I was lucky. I'll tell you. Yeah. So um, your novels then are, are considered uh, romance. Contemporary romance. Okay. All right. Awesome. And um, you know, you mentioned that you have like five outlines going at once, right? So uh, um, do you have like a work in progress, something that uh, you're actually like writing more than the outline right now? I am. Uh, I sent in the book proposal about, I don't know, a month ago. Um, and I probably have the first four chapters almost finished. Yes. Um, it happens to be a very personal story. This one, um, I guess would be put under murder mystery. I don't know. It's about a cold case. Ooh. Uh, uh, that after 40 years, um, Sydney Hansen wants the answer to why one of her very best friends was murdered. Well, not why she, she's pretty sure why, but who did it? Um, she's now 65 and she's just retiring and it's time to honor her promise to her friend Wyatt, who was murdered and find out who did it. 
Um, so she goes to the precinct in which he had lived and talks to the cold case um, squad, the, the homicide division that does the cold cases, mm-hmm. taking this, this case on. Um, and they decide they'll look into it, and they get back to her, and indeed they decide they are going to look into it. Um, so does this, course, does this take oh, place in New York City as well? It does, okay. yeah. I love this city, um, so um, I figure, you know, I kind of like Sex in the City, which made New York City one of its integral characters. I, I do that with my books. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, it's that old adage, right, what you know, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Hey, are you familiar what you're talking about with this um, book you're working on? Um, sounds like a show I just watched, all four seasons of it. It's called Unforgotten. I've heard about it, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's all about cold cases. Um, and uh, I think they call them historical crimes, maybe. Um, okay. It's uh, it's a British show. And yeah, uh, yeah it's really good. I'll watch it. Yeah. So, um, so that's cool. So, um, any idea like when you'll have that to the publisher? I told them um, about a year from now. <laughs> okay. I was, how long it would take me? As I said, it's a personal story, and I don't want to screw it up. Okay. So um, I just figured it might take me a while to work through some of this stuff because it is actually based on a friend of mine who was murdered 40 years ago in the city, and we had our idea about what happened. Um, it was never solved, and I wanted to go to the Cold Case Squad, which was actually its own division then, um, but the circle of friends that I was with then did not want to see that happen either. So I let it go, um, and I probably shouldn't have. So this is sort of what might have been, you know, if I'd done what I wanted to do, yeah. uh, except that I'm, you know, rolling the age forward to the age I am now. Um, so I just wasn't sure if this was going to be too emotional for me or if, you know, it was going to be business as usual. Yeah. So I wanted to give myself enough time. But I figure if I finish it earlier, um, they can maybe slip it into a publishing schedule sooner. Okay. okay. We'll see. Okay. All right. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. That sounds like a great, a great story. I can't wait to see that one. Um, so, so Mary, I want to ask you, right. Um, in your bio, you know, when I, I look, uh, look you up and find out some interesting facts about you and, uh, <laughs> in your bio, um, you say that you had a 20-year writer's block. Yes, I did. So what were you doing for 20 years? And then and then, what propelled you to write again? Um, for 20 years, honestly, I was doing maybe nothing except um, poetry because that's kind of like batting practice. Um, I had been in graduate school getting my Master of, of um, Fine Arts and Playwriting. And you know what? You get kind of burnt out in some of these programs. Um so between that and I had gone to a couple of, um, um, I had gone to Lake Dotto and the Dorset Colony, a couple of writers' colonies, and honest, you know, they're not for me. I would never go to a writers' colony again. Um, they're lovely places, but you know, it's too quiet for me. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, at Dorset, my sister had come up to see me, and we had gone to um, Middlebury, Vermont. And on the way there, we hit a dog, and it just, um, I got. It was okay. We, we, you know, the owner was like not far away. They got, they got the dog to, to a vet 
I paid for the whole thing. And, you know, I was just, I was beside myself. And so, yeah, and that's just, rough. Yeah. I've never done anything like that before. Um, I mean, the dog wasn't on a leash, you know, not that that's any excuse, but you know, who, who knew this dog was going to challenge our tire. Yeah. Um, so that just kind of, I don't know, that just kind of broke me in a way. And between that and the end of graduate school, I was sort of done. I was burnt out. Yeah. And I, uh, I kept my hand in it by writing poetry. And right around that time, oh, a couple of years later, um, I was doing a lot of country two-step dancing here in New York. And the guy that worked the door, I became friends with him. And he was the one that invited me into the writer's group. Um, really, the only thing he knew about me was that I was good on the dance floor and really funny. <laughs> and that I, you know, wrote. And mm. so he group and that kind of saved me. It kept my hand in things because uh, I had to be able to critique the work that I was hearing um, and to take the critiques that I was hearing from the other writers about the poetry. Mm-hmm. So um, I really, you know, I have to be grateful for them to take for, for taking me in. I kept my hand in the poetry and a little bit in the playwriting, but it really wasn't until um, 2010 when I left my job at the time and, and my wife said, you know, I said, I'd kind of like to take a year or two off to write. And she said, okay. Uh, and that's when it started kind of pouring out about a year later. Nice. And I thought it would be a play and it was a novel instead. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Really, how that just kind of unfolded for you. It, yeah. I was very lucky, yeah. I think. Yeah. So... Um, in addition to writing, you had another career, right? I did at that time. Well, I mean, that's basically when I stopped. My boss had decided to retire from that particular company, and I was going to take a year or two off and then get back into work. And what happened was, um, well, we both decided, you know, once the writing broke, I should stick with it a little bit. And then my mother, uh, at about the same time that I left that company, my mother became ill. And my sisters and I were taking care of her. Um, I was going to Cape Cod where she lived uh, every six weeks for two weeks to give my sisters a break and taking, uh, taking care of her, staying with her for a couple of weeks, coming home for six weeks and turning around and going back to do that again for four years um, while we got her through that and more or less uh, to the end of her life. Um, for four years? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. You yeah. are a good daughter. Well, we, we had a good upraising. We had good parents. I think they would have done the same, you know, had I been sick. Um, so it was, I mean, it was, you don't think about it at the time. It was a lot of work, yeah. but you don't at the time. You just do it. Yep. Plus, I, the one of my sisters who lived closer to my mother was really, really, I mean, she needed the help yeah. a lot. Yeah. And my young sister who lived in Boston was coming up probably every third weekend to spend 24 hours with mom. So it was, a, it was concerted effort. My brothers came home on their vacations and they'd stay for two weeks, you know, use up their whole vacation to stay with mom. So, um, it was a whole, it was a family effort. Mm. How um, many kids are in your family? There are six of us. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nice. nice. And you know, it was, it was sort of a gift. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but it was a gift to be able to spend that kind of time with my mother, even if we were not the closest yeah. family. Uh, I realize now I, you know, got a chance I never would have. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's special. That's nice. Yeah. So um, I think I read somewhere that you were doing some editing work also. I did some editing work for a while. Yeah. I don't know how good at it I am. Um, but uh, 
sometimes it pays the bills. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what do you think from an editor's perspective? Like what was one of the most common writing, I'll say no-nos that you saw? Um, probably run on sentences okay. and uh, punctuation that is not used correctly. Yeah. Okay. And those are, you know, two of my pet peeves. And it turned out to be kind of funny, the punctuation thing, because I figured, well, I'm, I'm kind of the queen of the comma here. And when I got the first um, go round back from one of the editors who, who does the punctuation and grammar at Bold Strokes, and there were just pages of corrections, I was like, hey. And then I went through them and read what Cindy wrote, and I thought, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that, and I didn't know that. So <laughs> she's definitely the queen of the commas, not me. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I uh, I recently was editing uh, a story someone wrote at work, um, and I I had never encountered anything like that before. They really overused the comma. It was like almost after every word. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't know why she, the the author, felt compelled to do that. <laughs> like salt and pepper, they just pour it on. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. So, so do you have um, like any writing rituals uh, or like a designated space um, that you know? Uh, I don't know. I know some people have told me you know they write on the train on the way to work, and I'm like, how do you do that? You know. Um, so, like, do, do you have anything special like that? I know. I used to think the same thing about the train. I probably couldn't have written anything on a train then, but now I could probably write, you know, standing up at the supermarket. It doesn't bother me. Really? Um, well, like I said, it just is pouring out of me, and I don't want to stop it. So That's awesome. So, where I am that I can write, I do. Uh, but mostly, it's I go to the little park across the street if the weather is good. So, every day that there's <laughs> that it's possible... I don't care what else is going on in my life. Nope, this thing is not going to get clean today. I'm going out to the park to write. Um, and I'm out there for, I don't know, two anywhere between two and four hours. Um, I'd like to say I could stay out there six hours, but I can't because you get buttitis even if you get up and walk around. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm out there working. I sit, I like to sit in the same corner, which I feel like kind of a little brat. If somebody's out there in my corner, I just, oh, what am I going to do? So I have a two other places I can sit and write. Um, but I have my eye on that corner seat and the, you know, yeah. the the- so you don't like pace behind them till they get up and leave. <laughs> but of course I am glancing over at them from wherever I'm sitting. And um, it's kind of funny several months ago in smack in the middle of the pandemic, uh, one gal, I usually write in the afternoon. I came out one, one, well, that whole week I was out three or four mornings and there was a gal out there teaching her, I don't know, maybe 10 year old son um, working with him on school lessons and, I just sat across the little square and, you know, waited patiently till she was gone. Finally, she realized, she said, oh, you're the one that sits here in the afternoon. And I said, yeah, I do. Oh. Said, space all week. I said, no, you haven't. It's your space in the morning. That's fine. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so people know you. We do. Well, it's, it's pretty much the same people in the park every day. It's not a terribly big park. It's oh, maybe about half a block by half a block. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we all sort of know each other. A lot of the people from the Ford Foundation come over for lunch and from the UN. So I go in at lunchtime if I'm out there working in the morning because, yeah. you, you know, then it gets too crowded. Um, but after lunch, it's like everybody's gone. The place is to myself. Um, and I work out there and then I come in here and I uh, type it up in the apartment uh, in the evening, uh, editing as I go. And then in the morning, I look it over again and see if there's anything else that 
I can add or delete or edit or whatever. Um, sometimes I uh, write some more at night while I'm typing it up. I'm like, ooh, I could do this and that and the other thing to it. So I keep working on it. Um, and that's pretty much it. In the wintertime, of course, I have to work in here largely in the apartment. So um, so are you, you know, telling us that you handwrite your books? I do. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah. Um, I sort of have a bond with Carson Tate because we both use Blackwing pencil, pencils, which we found out on, on one of the, the Bold Strokes authors panels. I love those pencils and she uses them too. Wow. Yeah, I, I do some of it. Well, I'll tell you, when, when I had to rewrite the second half of Forging a Desire Line, it was December. I couldn't, I couldn't do it by hand and I didn't have the time. So I like had no choice. I had to actually write the second half of the book on the computer. Um, I had less than three weeks to do it. And that was a, a real big lesson to me that you can do it. Um, but I just, I don't love the computer light and I don't like sitting here in front of a computer that long. Okay. I'd rather the park um, with my pad and pencil. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Allie Valley does that too. She, she writes yeah. out in longhand. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It allows you to think and it allows you to change things. That's true. It does. You can edit as you type it in, right? Yeah. Cool. So, uh, so Mary, do you like to hear from your readers and, and from our listeners? Oh, I definitely do. And, and how yeah. would they get a hold of you? Um, um, there are two different ways that they can get a hold of me. Uh, let's see. I have a website, marypburns.com. Okay. And I think that leads you to, I'm, I'm just double checking here on my email. Uh, I, the email there is maryburns11c. Um, maryburns11c? like in charlie at gmail.com okay and if you go to the marypburns.com website um that that's what it what it, the email that it brings you to okay great all right love to hear from my fans oh wonderful great so um so let's see actually tomorrow um suspecting her is coming out on on everywhere um yes. And it is currently out through Bold Strokes website. Um, yeah. So awesome. And uh, your first novel with Bold Strokes, Forging a Desire Line, is um, out everywhere, right? You can get that at Bold Strokes or Amazon or wherever you buy your ebooks or paperbacks. Yeah. Awesome. So. Uh, Mary, that is all the time we have for today. Um, well, thank hey, I want to thank you for, for joining us. This was great. It was uh, really nice to talk with you. Thanks, and you too. Yeah. Yeah, and I look, uh, I'm look. i looking forward to, to this murder mystery. Great. Yeah, really. <laughs> I have to keep, keep my eye out for that one. But, uh, you know, thanks, uh, thanks for joining Liz Talk About Books. I'm Anita Kelly. And uh, until next time, may your journey be lighthearted, peace be plenty, and thanks again, Mary P. Burns. Thank you.